Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. March 8th was International Women's Day, and this year's theme is Be Bold for Change. So in honor of that, this episode is dedicated to covering the history of women in surgery. Of course, that's a huge topic, and certainly one episode is not nearly enough to cover it properly. What I'll attempt today is to give you a flavor of the story, starting in ancient times and highlighting just a few of the pioneers of surgery in the modern era. To round out the story a bit, I'll also highlight some female surgeons through Twitter that aren't covered in the podcast. Now, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The frequently quoted first evidence of a female surgeon is Queen Shubad of the ancient Sumerian city of Ur from around 3500 before Common Era BCE. She was entombed with surgical instruments made of flint and bronze, leading some archaeologists to believe that she practiced as a surgeon. The medical school in Heliopolis in Egypt had female students as early as 1500 BCE, and a small chapel in Thebes, Egypt, shows a small painting of a slave girl operating on a patient, which dates back to around 1420 BCE. In fact, there's abundant evidence of female physicians in the ancient world. There's even a story about the Romans conquering the Greek city-state of Corinth, taking hundreds of female prisoners to the slave markets of Rome, where women with medical training were sold for the highest price. One particularly famous female surgeon from antiquity was Aspasia, a Greek gynecologist from around the 4th century CE, or Common Era. She mainly practiced obstetrics and gynecology, and developed her own surgical techniques, some of which were described by the Byzantine surgeon Aetius of Amida, which is in modern Turkey, in his 16 books on medicine, which served as a main surgical text until around the 11th century CE. There are other accounts of female physicians and surgeons from antiquity, but following the Dark Ages, when we have very little written record, women ceased to be widely accepted in the medical field. The 12th century's newly founded universities of Europe and Britain were not open to women. And more explicitly, the charter of the Company of Barber Surgeons, written in 1540, specifically barred women. So it was in this atmosphere of a male-dominated profession that we really begin our story. One example does highlight the difficulties of women breaking into the field, and that is the story of Dr. James Barry, which I previously mentioned in episodes 10 and 15. I won't go into too much detail, but just remind you of the basic facts. Born Margaret Ann Bulkley, she posed as a man named James Berry her entire adult life, practicing as a military surgeon in the British Army from 1813 to 1864, traveling the world and even performing one of the first recorded successful cesarean sections. It wasn't until after her death that it was discovered that she was indeed female, causing quite an uproar and controversy, as you can imagine. Now think of the difficulty and the degree of effort required to maintain this masquerade throughout life, just to be able to practice medicine. But this episode is focused on the first known female physicians of the modern era. And the woman considered by most to be the first female physician of the modern era is Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. She was born to a large, well-off family in Bristol, England. Her father was a sugar refiner, but his refinery was burned down during riots and the family moved to America in 1839. Her father died young at age 48, when she was only 17, leaving nine children and a mountain of debt. Blackwell took a job as a teacher, but her life took a turn when a friend of her mother's, who was dying of uterine cancer, said to her, quote, If I could have been treated by a lady doctor, I should have been spared much of my suffering, end quote. But getting into medical school was no easy feat. After applying to 29 schools, she was rejected by all but one, the Geneva School of Medicine in New York State. But there's an asterisk next to that. 
the question of allowing her entrance was put to the students, with the stipulation that if even one student voted nay, she would be rejected. Many of the students thought that this was a practical joke, and they voted unanimously to let her in. Now, despite this inauspicious start, Blackwell quickly won the respect of her classmates and students and graduated at the top of her class in January of 1849. Now, following this, she traveled to Europe, initially having to enter a training school for midwives for six months in Paris, and later training at St. Bartholomew's in London. Now, while in the midwifery school, she suffered a gonococcal eye infection while treating a baby and had to have her eye removed, ending her goal of becoming a surgeon. She did return to England and trained at St. Bartholomew's Hospital with Dr. James Paget. And I'll cover the Paget family in another podcast. Now, Dr. Blackwell returned to New York, and after failing to find employment in the city clinics, she decided to open up her own dispensary in a poor part of town. She, along with her sister Emily, who had recently graduated from Rush Medical College, opened the New York Dispensary for Poor Women and Children in March of 1854. It failed within the year due to financial problems, but they reopened on a grander scale as the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children on May 12, 1857. The goal was to not only provide care, but to deliver quality medical education and clinical training to women. The infirmary was an instant success, and on November 2nd of 1868, the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary was officially opened. The medical college was subsumed by Cornell Medical College in 1899, and the New York Infirmary became the New York Downtown Hospital, still the only hospital in Lower Manhattan. Now, of historical interest, it treated more than 1,500 patients, including 269 rescue workers, after the attacks of 9-11, despite the loss of electricity, steam, gas, phones, water pressure, and computer services. Once again, we see the amazing interconnectedness of history. Dr. Blackwell passed away on May 25, 1910, at the age of 85. We'll leave with a quote from her. Quote, I think we are really happy in this medical movement. We must have acted in the right time, for how seldom it is that those who are privileged to initiate an important reform see such wonderful results from the effort during their lifetime. End quote. Well, now let's turn to someone who was inspired by Dr. Blackwell to pursue a career in medicine, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. Born 1836 in Alderburg, Suffolk, England, to a wealthy family, she joined the Society for Promoting the Employment of Women and met Elizabeth Blackwell through this in 1859, where she gave three lectures in London on medicine as a profession for ladies, inspiring her to enter the medical field. Garrett Anderson entered the Middlesex Hospital in August of 1860 as a surgery nurse for six months, attended some lectures and gained some clinical experience, as well as hiring a private tutor in anatomy and physiology. But this was forced to stop because male medical students demanded it. The story goes that a visiting physician asked the class a question which none of the men could answer. Elizabeth gave the right reply and the students were angry and petitioned for her dismissal. Rejected by medical schools throughout England and Scotland, but scrounging for any clinical experience she could, including working with Dr. James Young Simpson in Edinburgh, she found a loophole. In 1865, she took the exam and got a license from the Society of Apothecaries to Practice Medicine, the first woman to qualify in Britain. The Society of Apothecaries immediately closed this loophole after she did this, and it was not until 1876 that the new Medical Act passed, which allowed British medical authorities to license all qualified applicants regardless of gender. And as an FYI, apothecary is an old term for a medical professional that was sort of part pharmacist and part physician, and dates back to 2600 BCE in ancient Babylon. Anyways, Dr. Garrett Anderson set up rooms in Upper Berkeley Street in London and opened the St. Mary's Dispensary for Mothers and Children. She soon had a thriving practice of women and children, at first charging a penny a visit, but then she had to raise the fee to sixpence, 
even though the dispensary had 10,000 visits and attendances a year. And in 1868, the University of Paris admitted women to degrees in medicine, and despite her busy practice, she was able to study again and took the exams in French. She finally got her well-deserved MD. In 1970, she obtained honorary appointment as staff on the East London Hospital for Children, and in 1871, opened a 10-bed unit above the St. Mary's Dispensary, calling it the New Hospital for Women, which was the first hospital in England to have an entirely female staff. For 20 years, Dr. Garrett Anderson alone did all of the surgical work at the New Hospital. Late in life, she confessed that she always felt a bit uncomfortable with it, saying, quote, I want surgical knowledge constantly and must study it as best I may, end quote. Now, the hospital moved a few times as it grew in popularity and was renamed the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital in 1918, just one year after her death. It is still active today as the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Wing of the University College Hospital. Now, she was also heavily involved in education, serving as the dean of the new London School of Medicine for Women. She often told her students, quote, The first thing a woman must learn is to dress like a lady and behave like a gentleman, end quote. Now, following her retirement in 1902, she took on a quiet life and lived long enough to see her own daughter Louisa go off to war in 1914. All right, let's talk a little bit about Louisa. Louisa Garrett Anderson was one of 31 students in her medical school class at the London School of Medicine for Women, that same school I just mentioned where her mother was dean. She gained her MD in 1900, and in the following year went to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, studying under the famous Dr. Osler, and then in the operating room of Dr. Sen at Rush Medical College in Chicago. Returning to England, Dr. Garrett Anderson was appointed to the house staff of the new hospital for women, joining the surgical department and working there until the beginning of World War I. And before we get to the war stories, there's another interesting tidbit about her. In the years leading up to the war, the women's suffrage movement was in full swing in England. Dr. Garrett Anderson became increasingly involved in the movement, culminating in her participating in a march on March 1st of 1912, where a large number of women attacked a huge area of West London, breaking hundreds of windows with hammers and stones. She was arrested along with over 200 other women and was sentenced to six weeks hard labor at Holloway Prison. Now, although her sentence was shortened to two weeks, the experience seemed to crystallize her sense of purpose, stating, quote, Do not let your personal preference for professional work or a quiet life hinder you from accepting responsibility when the demand comes, end quote. Now, at the same time, Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson opened a hospital with her friend, Dr. Flora Murray, she being the surgeon and Murray being the physician slash anesthesiologist. They called this the Women's Hospital for Children. She worked there and at the new hospital for women until her life was disrupted by World War I. She and Dr. Murray decided that they wanted to contribute to the Army's medical services, but knowing that the War Office of Britain would reject them, they went straight to the French authorities. Their help was welcomed, and the French Red Cross found a location, and within two weeks, the Women's Hospital Corps was fully equipped. A team of five doctors Eight nurses, three women orderlies, and four men left London to become the first women's unit to go into active service, setting up in the Hôtel Clarige on the Champs Elysees in Paris. Almost immediately, their team began to receive large numbers of seriously wounded soldiers, many requiring urgent surgery. The women had to practice neurosurgery, thoracic surgery, abdominal surgery, and orthopedics, most with very little previous training. Now, despite the fact that only Dr. Garrett Anderson had real surgical experience, the hospital was a success and the Royal Army Medical Corps asked them to set up a second hospital on the Channel Coast in the Chateau Maurissien, where they received the casualties being evacuated. One funny story that came out of this was that the chief surgeon, Dr. Garrett Anderson, recognized one of her patients as the man who had arrested her some years before at a suffrage demonstration. 
In January of 1915, the Director General of Army Medical Services, Sir Alfred Coe, invited them to return to London to open a large official military hospital, which was set up in a disused workhouse on Endell Street in London. The French hospitals were closed, and the Women's Hospital Corps opened the Endell Street Military Hospital in May of 1915 with a staff of 180, including 15 doctors. Dr. Flora Murray was doctor in charge, Dr. Garrett Anderson the chief surgeon, and both were given the rank of major. The hospital had 573 beds, the vast majority surgical, and at peak times would have had as many as 30 cases go to the operating room. In four and a half years, more than 7,000 operations were performed, mostly by Dr. Garrett Anderson. During her busy trauma work, she began to take an interest in wound healing, collaborating with Dr. Helen Chambers, the hospital pathologist, carrying out clinical trials of different treatments, and publishing their work in the Lancet Medical Journal. Quick side note. The Lancet was founded in 1823 by an English surgeon named Thomas Wakeley. Here's his reasoning for the name, quote, A lancet can be an arched window to let in the light, or it can be a sharp surgical instrument to cut out the dross, and I intend to use it in both senses. You can share that little nugget at your next journal club. Okay, in 1917, doctors Murray and Garrett Anderson were recognized for their contributions to the war effort by being made commanders of the Order of the British Empire, often shortened to CBE. After the war, Dr. Garrett Anderson returned to her position as consultant surgeon at the New Hospital for Women, which by this time had been re renamed after her mother, the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital, where she remained until her retirement in 1921. She kept busy after this, even writing her mother's biography, which was published in 1939, and returned to work a bit in the old hospital during World War II, either in the operating room or the casualty department. She passed away in 1943. So let's backtrack a bit and travel to America. The first female surgeon in the U.S., and maybe the most well-known of the early modern female surgeons, is Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. Her story is pretty amazing. Born in New York State in 1832, she grew up in a progressive household and was well-educated. After working as a teacher and saving up for tuition, Walker became the only woman in her class at Syracuse Medical College, now known as the State University of New York Upstate Medical University. For those who have attended medical school, you may find this funny. The training was just three 13-week-long semesters, and tuition was $55. Now, Dr. Walker graduated in 1855. She started private practice with her classmate, Arthur Miller, whom she married. Interesting note, she wore a suit and top hat at their wedding, omitted the word obey from her vows, and kept her last name. Now, sadly, their practice and marriage were unsuccessful. She divorced him at the start of the Civil War and attempted to join the Union Army. Now, this too was unsuccessful as the Army refused her an active duty commission. However, she was eventually able to volunteer to serve as a surgeon, but had to be counted as a nurse on military records. She served throughout the war, including the First Battle of Bull Run in 1862 and the Battles of Chickamauga in 1863 and Atlanta in 1864. Dr. Walker continued to request an official commission, even writing to President Lincoln. Finally, after two years, she was promoted to Contract Acting Assistant Surgeon Civilian in the Army of Cumberland under General George Henry Thomas and assigned as a surgeon to the 52nd Ohio Volunteers. In April of 1864, Dr. Walker was captured by a Confederate sentry while crossing the enemy line on horseback alone to treat wounded citizens left behind by the retreating Union Army. That is crazy. Now, after being captured, Dr. Walker spent four months in the fantastically named Castle Thunder Prison uh, near Richmond, Virginia, under charges of espionage before being freed as part of a prisoner exchange that returned at least 14 physicians to their respective armies. 
Apparently in the prisoner's list, she was written in as, quote, the notorious Dr. and Mrs. Mary Walker, surgeoness of the 52nd Ohio Regulars, end quote. Now, following this, she requested to be the surgeon for female prisoners of war in Louisville, Kentucky, with the title of acting assistant surgeon. This made her the first female surgeon commissioned in the Army. In November of 1865, Dr. Walker became the first, and as far as I can tell in the records, still the only female recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor by President Andrew Jackson. Here's the official citation, quote, Dr. Walker has devoted herself with much patriotic zeal to the sick and wounded soldiers, both in the field and hospitals, to the detriment of her own health, and has also endured hardships as a prisoner of war, end quote. Ah, but there's more to the story. In 1917, her award, and 910 others, were rescinded when the criteria for the honor was restricted to only those that had engaged in actual combat with the enemy. But in what should be no surprise to the listener, Dr. Walker refused to give up the medal and defiantly wore it every day for the rest of her life. Fortunately, the story has a happy ending, as President Jimmy Carter restored the honor, stating that her, quote, distinguished gallantry, self-sacrifice, patriotism, dedication, and unflinching loyalty to her country despite the apparent discrimination because of her sex, end quote. Now we've covered a few of the women that were able to overcome the numerous obstacles to pursue their dream of becoming physicians and surgeons. But I want to talk about one important story of a woman who was denied the opportunity to practice surgery, but she would go on to have an amazing career and life, and her name is recognizable to just about anyone in medicine, Dr. Virginia Apgar. Born in New Jersey, 1909, Virginia Apgar knew she wanted to be a doctor by the end of high school. Rejected by Harvard, who did not accept female medical students until 1945, Apgar went to Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, graduating fourth in her class in 1933. She began a two-year surgical internship at Columbia, but upon completion in 1935, she was discouraged by Dr. Alan Whipple, who was the chairman of the Department of Surgery at the time, from pursuing a surgical career. The reason for this was his concern about a woman being able to establish themselves in a practice, especially during the Great Depression, when men were having difficulties as well. In fact, four women surgeons had already trained at Columbia, and none were financially successful in their practices. He suggested that she pursue anesthesiology instead, a relatively new specialty, at least for doctors, as it had been done by either nurse anesthetists or other physicians up to that time. In 1934 in the U.S., only 159 physicians were full-time anesthesiologists, with another 384 doing it part-time. Dr. Apgar had some difficulty finding training, initially working with nurse anesthetists while looking for training opportunities, finally getting a visitor position at the University of Wisconsin. Now, there was a lack of housing available for female trainees, and she had to sleep in the program director's office for the first two weeks, and then in the maid's quarters. Now, she eventually was able to train properly, and in 1938, she became the chief of the newly formed Division of Anesthesia at Columbia University. Apgar flourished in this role, expanding the resident training program, fighting for anesthesiologists to be allowed to charge fees, and for the general acceptance of the specialty within medicine. By 1949, she had focused her practice on obstetrical anesthesia. Her most famous contribution was on the assessment of newborns. Typically, babies were left unattended after birth, as the doctors focused on the mothers. Now, Apgar realized that many were in distress. The urban legend is that a medical student, while discussing this problem with her at her legendary breakfast rounds, asked how to evaluate a newborn. Her answer was, quote, That's easy. You would do it like this, end quote and she scribbled down five points on a napkin that would become the APGAR score. Now, for those unfamiliar, this is a way to systematically evaluate a newborn baby at one and five minutes after birth, based on color, pulse, activity, reflex response, and breathing or respiratory effort. 
She published the system in 1953, and it's still in use today. One interesting note is that most people in medicine know the word APGAR to be a mnemonic device, or epigram, using the letters of her name. A for appearance, meaning color, P for pulse, G for grimace, or reflex response, A for activity level, and R for respiratory effort. But it wasn't Dr. Abgar herself that came up with this, but rather a fellow training under one of her colleagues named Dr. Joe Butterfield, which was published in a letter to JAMA in 1962. And Dr. Abgar loved this and sent him a thank you note. The final phase of her career involved her earning a Master's of Public Health degree from Johns Hopkins University in 1952 at the age of 43 and working with the March of Dimes on research on birth defects. Now, Dr. Abgar died in 1974 at the age of 65, leaving an impressive legacy. I came across a number of funny stories about her in my research, which I'd like to share. One is that she was known for being a fast talker, fast walker, and fast driver. People would often joke that she knew most of the New York City traffic officers by first name, and many of them actually attended her funeral. Another is that, as an accomplished musician, Dr. Apgar became interested in building her own instruments. While working on a cello, a patient of hers, that was an acoustical engineer, suggested a piece of cherry wood which happened to be acting as a shelf in a phone booth at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons Hospital, which the two of them liberated late one night. This became known as the phone booth caper. Dr. Apgar was known to play her cherry wood cello for years after that. It still resides at Columbia, and along with other instruments she made, is played at events in her honor. And there's so much more to cover, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'll tweet about some more female surgeons that uh, weren't covered today, as a single podcast could never do this topic justice. There are more female surgeons that I'll cover individually in future episodes, but for today, I want to leave you with a quote by Dr. Marie Mergler, an early gynecological surgeon who became Dean of Women's Hospital Medical College of Chicago in 1899, which was her alma mater. Upon reflecting on her life, she said, quote, No woman studying medicine today will ever know how much it has cost the individuals personally concerned in bringing about these changes, how eagerly they have watched new developments and mourned each defeat and rejoiced with each success. For with them, it meant much more than success or failure for the individual. It meant the failure or success of a grand cause. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. And for the next episode, I'm going to ask you, the listeners, to help me decide who to talk about. I've posted a poll on Twitter, so please go vote. And don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.